welcome to The Possibility Project, an open conversation series where changemakers talk about the big questions we need to answer now. Your hosts are Devin Davey and Heather Hiscox, together with technical help from the nonprofit Snapcast. This series empowers the listener to shift systems, rebuild structures, and foster equity in the social impact sector. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Possibility Project. We are a growing community of disruptive changemakers reclaiming our power through meaningful sparks, connections, and action. And this is episode number 27, I can hardly believe it. And the topic today is limitations of empathy and the future of narrative intelligence. So you will learn about what all of that means with the amazing Michael Bryan. We're so excited. And if you have missed any of our previous episodes, please check out the website, possibilityproject.org. All of the other episodes are there and you can also check them out on YouTube and uh, sign up and subscribe to the YouTube channel. And we also wanna give a special thank you to uh, Mickey Desai. So what Mickey does is he takes our episodes, he turns them into abbreviated podcasts and he puts them on his podcast, which is Nonprofit Snapcast. And he has another amazing um, new podcast called Inclusion Catalyst. So Devin's putting those links in the chat. So please check out Mickey's work. Beyond our episodes, he has amazing guests that he interviews um, on a regular basis. So check that out. And um, this is our, this is Devin and I, and I'm Heather Hiscox, and we're going to use the um, Genesis Healing Institute introduction um, guidelines that Nova Wren from Genesis has shared with us. He's a previous amazing speaker and guest with Possibility Project. And um, I just want to talk through land acknowledgement a little bit. So I use she, her pronouns, and I'm coming to you from the land that was kept and held sacred by Tona Autumn and Pasquayaki people here in Tucson, Arizona. I honor these ancestral keepers of this land where I am now living and I honor their descendants who continue to breathe sacred life into our earth. The other piece that Devin and I wanna acknowledge is that we wanna hold space for the tension that lies within land acknowledgements. Um, there are divergent beliefs. Other people feel that land acknowledgements actually undermine indigenous sovereignty. So Devin's going to put a link for an article where you can read some of these different perspectives, which you think is really helpful. Our hope is that land acknowledgements are respectful of indigenous nations um, who claim the land and they can accurately tell the story of how the land was passed and taken in many cases from indigenous to non-indigenous control and chart a path forward for addressing the harm inflicted through the process of land dispossession and theft. And so we just wanna acknowledge and hold space for that. And there will be another link that Devin's going to put where if you're not aware of the land that you occupy, you can go ahead and click on that link and type in your zip code and your um, community and find out where you are. And we also want to recognize that many of our guests do represent a U.S.-based perspective. Um, we welcome all perspectives from places and spaces, but we want to name that, that we primarily have a U.S.-based um, foundation. So for anyone that is disabled visually, um, I'll describe my physical person. I am Heather Hiscox. I'm a white woman with red hair, blue eyes, freckles. I'm wearing a gray sweater and I'm in a colorful room with art. And um, we will provide a transcript of today's episode so you'll be able to read that in detail if that is helpful. 
So my amazing co-creator, Devin Davey, is a strategy management consultant helping social entrepreneurs and networks by co-designing and implementing people and process approaches and solutions. You can learn more about Devin's work at devindavey.com. She'll put that link in the chat. And again, I'm Heather and I'm CEO and founder of Pause for Change. And I'm changing the way that we change the world and really focus on helping social impact organizations save more time, um, use fewer resources while creating deeper impact, addressing actual problems. And, um, so that's what I do. You can check out my website. And Devin and I created Possibility Project in March of 2020 when COVID hit the US. And our dream was really to make this moment matter. And we wanted to soulfully scale these conversations that we were having that were so life-giving with people in our networks. And we thought, why don't we have these more disruptive conversations around the topics we have to talk about now at scale? Why don't we spread across and outside of our networks and bring in amazing individuals to help us guide and lead the conversation. So that's what we're all about and what we're here to do. And if you can help us in any way, we would love if you can make a gift of support. This is a volunteer project on all of our parts, including Mike's today. So you can go to opencollective.com slash possibility project. It's a really cool new, very transparent fiscal sponsor model that we're privileged to use at an organization out of New Zealand that also is doing work in the US. So I definitely encourage you to check them out. And if you can make a gift, we would absolutely love that to help us move forward. And before we get to Mike, these are just the four goals that we hold for Possibility Project that we want to talk through. We want to bring you all together as a community of more disruptive thinkers and change makers. We want to stimulate new thinking and that thirst for deeper change. We want to be collaborative and really focus on action with what you can do first. What can you do as an individual starting with yourself to start to make the change? So that's what we're all about. And we are so excited to have Mike O'Brien with us today. Devin's going to put Mike's bio in the chat. Um, I have had the pleasure of watching Mike present multiple different times with different organizations. And I have just learned so much and thoroughly enjoyed how he frames these topics that we're gonna discuss today. So Mike, I'm gonna turn it over to you. And I would love for you to introduce yourself to our community with a, a little story. Sure. <clears throat> Hi, everybody. It's uh, fantastic to, to be here and in space with you all. And hey to so many people that I know who also showed up. Super flattered that you are in your time, um, given that you've heard me speak plenty of times before. So thank you for coming around again. And to all the new folks I'm meeting today for the first time, super excited to hold space with you all and to bear witness to your humanity here and i don't take that lightly it's a gift um so yeah michael bryan there's that weird bio that's in the chat you know bios are strange you never write them yourselves or often you don't i got a um <laughs> someone wrote my bio for me a very um fantastic uh writer and journalist and friend Malcolm Burnley, but he called me Mr. O'Brien, and I didn't realize it in, in the bio, and like someone was reading it, and they're like, Mr. O'Brien, I was like, who's that? So bios are such a fascinating thing. Anyway, here's my introductory story. <laughs> Appreciate my friends. So I um, am in Philadelphia, have been in Philadelphia since I came to college back in 2003. So I've been in Philly for 18 years. I'm 36. I literally have spent literally spent half of my life in Philadelphia. When I was 19, uh, when I came to Philly to go to school for music. So 
from Hartford, Connecticut, completely obsessed with all the music in Philly historically, you know, from American Bandstand to Gamble and Huff, you name it. Philadelphia is a staple in American music um, and in, in the black presence and contributions to what is American music. Um, and as a musician and as someone that studied music, it's safe to say that black music is American music. It's a very unfortunate space in America where we have to like fight for that, but the history is very clear. And if anyone studies music and can read it, it's also very, very clear. Um, so I came to Philly for those reasons, right? Because um, I wanted to be immersed in that history, but also the contemporary world where it was going. So of course, in 2003, the roots are a thing, right? They're still a thing, but the roots are huge. And there are all these groups and bands and Bilal, and I mean, you just name it, they're huge. And all these musicians that play with, you know, D'Angelo and all these other people that I was admiring and on records with Lauren Hill and blah, 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 and the James Poisers and this, everybody. Um, so we, my friends and I wanted to go see this mega show that was at a spot called the Electric Factory. We weren't old enough to get in, so we were annoyed, but we were determined, and we are like, we're gonna figure out how to get in. So we, we snuck in through the back uh, where the stage entrance is, and we're like ducking and dodging and playing MacGyver and hiding on walls and slipping over here and jumping over, you know, uh, banisters. I mean, it's, it's kind of wild. Uh, but we got far, but then we would keep running. Every time we got far, we'd run into security and we'd have to be like, oh, well, and they kind of walk off or just like run the other way before they chased us off. Um, and so we get to this one part after we had been ducking and dodging and moving and maneuvering. And there are these drumsticks in the, the doorway and we go through and there's another security guard and we were like, this is our last hope, we can't, we're not getting in. And so we're looking at the, the drumsticks when we're leaving that spot and we see like, like Questlove has like, it's like his face on them. But they were in a, 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 a like a wrapping, so we didn't think anything of it. We were like, ah, oh, well, let's just, whatever. So my buddy was like, I'm grabbing the sticks because we didn't get to do anything else. And I was like, cool, whatever. So we leave. Two days later, I'm on MySpace, and Questlove has this post up, and it's like, who the hell took my sticks? And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. We stole Questlove's sticks. And he had this long entry about... Uh, the the sticks. So then, fast forward a couple of years later, I was excuse me on something, and he was. T I don't know if it was an article or I was watching him talk online. But somebody asked him a question, and he referred back to that day and losing those sticks. And I was like, I'm gonna have to like make it one day so I can be like his friend and be like, can I buy you like an expensive bottle of champagne or something and make up for what my friend did? I'm gonna see if my friend still has these sticks. So we can try to get him back to of like 19 or 18, I can do math, 17 years later. That's my intro story. We were playing MacGyver and inadvertently stole Questlove sticks, which made him upset. So God bless Questlove. But we didn't know any better, bro. We were 19, 18. We were just rowdy young people who love music and were trying to get into the venue. Done. <laughs> oh, I love it. And Louise is uh, tweeting Questlove right now. Oh, great. <laughs> please put that as a mega apology from me, please. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Oh, thank you so much, Mike, for sharing. Yes. It's just such a pleasure. Mike has been on my dream list for a guest to have here with us. So, Mike, please take it away. Take it away. Thank you. Thank you. So, 
Today is a very uh, informal day. I want you to please dialogue with me. Um, I have a bajillion slides, but it's one of those things where it's like overindulgence because of Zoom life. You feel like if you don't have a slide for every talking point, you start to like get lost in the sauce. So human connection matters more than slides, and I know what I want to talk to you about, so I'm happy to dialogue with you more and have some of this information come out in dialogue, but also do have some points I want to land um, and things I want to explore, right? I want to also contextualize this, not as me as some kind of expert, but really me as like, I'm insatiably curious and I read all the time and I lead my artistic practice and my research practice and my design practice. Like all of my practices are led with questions. It's led with inquiry and a, again, a ton of curiosity. So this is more about my exploratory nature and the things that I found at, at the you know, intersection of practice and research, right, in the space of praxis, that as I'm, I guess I'm a, <laughs> I have friends in the sciences who are like, Michael, you're a man of science. And I'm like, oh, why do you say that? Because like, you're always looking for the next question. It's never about the answer or the solution. It's always about, well, what's the next iterative question and what's the next thing you're looking for? And so that is um, a huge part of, of today as well. So I welcome questions. I welcome thoughts. I welcome conjecture. I welcome like, hey, I don't know about that. Let's talk about it. And then let's unpack it, right? Because my goal here is not to be right. And we're very clear about that. My goal is not to be right. It is My goal is to be as accurate as possible, right? In terms of like the science and the other things I'm bringing to the table. Um, but my goal is not to be right and to say you're wrong or to be right and say, this is the only way something works or this is the only way something is. Because I don't know. I've, I find that the more we do that, the more we end up just deep in our silos and um yeah a lot of lot of opportunity to find the what i call the third way right sometimes it's not this or that it's the new lane that has bits of this and that and something else that we haven't even figured out yet so all that being said please feel free to dialogue ask questions raise your hand whatever the case is and we can we can chat i'm also going to be providing opportunities for you all to dialogue with each other because I also think that's important. Um, and we're gonna start there actually. Um, so Heather, if you wanna prep folks, I'm gonna share my screen. Uh, there we go. So this first thing that you'll be engaging in, the first conversation you'll be engaging in, is actually a bit of narrative work at play, a little bit of storytelling into narrative work at play. So I would love for you all to be in groups of two or three. I don't know how the math breaks out here to be the best, Heather, but go for it. Where you're gonna ask each other these three core questions. How's your body, how's your mind, how's your heart? Now here's how a check-in works. A check, well actually, I'm gonna do something I don't often do. We're gonna define this in negation first. Here's what a check-in is not. A check-in is not the historical record of your life, the last 24 hours, even the last hour, right? A check-in is not you telling the deepest detail story of beginning, middle, end about any one of these dimensions and what's transpired in those areas for you. A check-in is, however, I like to call it a litmus uh, test, litmus paper, like dunk test, uh, styled test, to give people a little like read on, here's where I'm at in the world. And I learned this particular check-in from uh, a brilliant man named Dr. Robert Macy, was a trauma uh, specialist. And the, the goal behind this kind of a check-in is to bring you and other people into the awareness of the multidimensionality of your humanity, 
we live in a society that, and the reason I like to use this particular exercise a lot with clients and folks, is because of the, the premise of my um, firm, Human Nature. Uh, our, the, one of the main premises we work under is that society, as we know it in America, is built on dehumanization. I'd argue that a lot of other places in the world are built on that same type of premise, right? Because of colonization, right? And, and what I mean by society, I mean modern society, right? Colonization and activities of war that have economics tied to it are typically not activities that center the humanity of anybody. And that includes the people who are on the quote unquote winning side. Because I'd argue, for example, if we considered the humanity, considered the humanity of American soldiers, we would treat PTSD seriously in this. We would do something just a bit different, right? And on the flip side, if we value the humanity of the people who are having war enacted upon them, we would do something very differently there. Not go to war. I won't go down the war uh, pathway here because I know it can get spicy. But the point here is that I believe in, in America and in many other places in the modern world, modern society is just built on the premise of dehumanization that gives way to racism, sexism, classism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, name the ism, name the phobia. They all have their roots in denying the humanity of others. And we're gonna get into some of that technical space. And so this kind of an exercise is a really simple signal to others, to yourself, to the body, to the mind, to the subconscious, that you are human and your humanity exists in multiple dimensions that are co-occurring and dynamic. They influence one another. And the likelihood is they're gonna have an impact in some way on whatever you just, excuse me, whatever you're uh, about to embark on or do. So as an example, if you were in traffic on your way to work, somebody rear-ended you and you spilled your coffee all over your lap and your nice outfit, uh, you were now seven minutes late for a big meeting your boss said nobody can be late to. So you're coming into that room with coffee stains, late, with a rear end that you then have to uh, deal with insurance. I don't know that you're gonna have the happiest first 15 minutes of that meeting. And maybe no one should expect you to, is the other side of that. So this is a way for us to be thoughtful about how do we even manage expectations of ourselves and others and the reality of their humanity for how we experience life and maybe stop treating each other like ro robots who are supposed to do A, B, and C at the moment we cross a threat. So that's the why. Um, 90 seconds or less, right? You get 30 seconds to talk about how your body feels, 30 seconds to talk about where your mind's at, and 30 seconds to talk about your heart. That's it. No long storytelling. So anyone got a question? Anything confusing? Great. Why don't we break off and what will give you roughly what? I don't know, Heather, you go for it. You Whatever you all normally do. I did, three, I did three minutes. Okay, there we go. So some of you do have one one group. Um, so Michael, I'm gonna put you in a room too. Is that all right? That is more than fine. Never feels like enough time. I was gonna say that too, not enough time. <laughs> oh, well that's good. I'm glad that you are all connecting and wanting to connect. We're gonna make some more time for talking today for sure for sure um i want to i'm just looking at something yeah you you're, you'll be back in the breakout group in no time it just won't be with the person you were just with i think i apologize was anybody cut off from a thing they were saying that they really want to finish i know how that works in zoom life i've been doing zoom life for quite a while so if that's a thing i will leave 30 seconds for someone to put the seven words they got cut off in in the middle when we transition <laughs> cool Alrighty, so I'm gonna share my screen again.
um, here we go. And just ask that you humor me in this space of some community agreements because we are going to be talking as a large group. We're going to be talking in smaller groups. Um, and this isn't meant to in any way tell you how to be. It's just a quick request um, on how we can both create and hold and maintain space together. If we had more time, and this was an in-person thing on top of that, but I've done it digitally too, we would make these together. Like I would actually have these in my back pocket, but would let you all emerge what you wanted and needed in this space to show up as your fullest and most authentic self, right? That's typically how we phrase this question when building agreements is, what do you need both in practice and in you know emotional um, resonance in the space to show up as your fullest and most authentic self. Um, and I find this is a powerful conversation to have because most spaces are not designed with your authentic self in mind. They're designed with productivity in mind. They're designed with, you know, fill in the blank in mind, um, maximization of time, efficiency. I mean, it's, it, but it's often not designed with your authentic self in mind. Um, and when some people do get the default of their authentic self being um, in mind, it's typically one or two kind of major groups, right? So I invite you to think about that, excuse me, in the context of how you design space and place with, the, with, each, with your teams and each other. With that said, um, you know, I want to make two quick comments on um, some of these. The main one I want to point out first is two truths can exist in the same space at the same time. Life is complex. And a rule of complexity theory is that you can have contradictions and things that seem to completely be polar opposites that should not exist in the same space being completely present and totally happening and existing at the same time, right? Like that is a reality of life. And, and the, the bigger reality is multiple things. It's not just two, it can be four sometimes, right? Uh, truths can exist in the same space at the same time. Um, the other one I wanna point out is this idea of trusting the intent and only the impact. Uh, it's a choice to show up in space and be in communal space, right? And that's a what we would call a brave choice, right? And bravery is the prerequisite for safety because safety by default requires trust. And if I don't know you well enough to trust you, the idea and demand put on me that I should walk into a space and feel safe or could feel safe with having no prerequisite um, touch points or relationships to have trust, it's probably not a fair expectation. So really what I need to be doing or what is being asked of me is to be brave and take a risk and figuring out what it means to be brave and take a risk for me to show up authentically, et cetera. Uh, and this is where, um, you know, this idea of moving up, moving back also comes into play, which I'll talk about in two seconds. But what we want to to ask is that you're brave to take a risk to trust that someone's intent was from a good direction or originated from a good space. But the flip side is intentions only matter but so much. We have to own the impact. I might not intend to create harm, but if I created harm, I'm still responsible and liable for the harm that I've created. And what does that mean in terms of how we govern space together and create community? So we ask that you all trust the intent but own the impact, which can be hard. But this gets back to two truths being in the same space at the same time. My intention can be good and I can still create harm. So let us sit with us for a moment. Those are real things. And we go through this all the time. And running from that reality does us no good. We actually end up creating false stories and false narratives to back up 
however we feel and to save ourselves some shame. So we got to be careful there. Um, the last piece I want to pull back to is this move up, move back piece, right, with bravery. Sometimes being brave means listening more, which means making space for others, for them to share, for them to process, etc. Sometimes being brave means that you're going to share more. You're actually going to take up some space, right? So you know best where you fall in that spectrum. And there might be moments, subjects, or topics where you need to practice bravery in one direction or practice bravery in another direction, right? You know yourself best. But what we ask is that, you know, go for it. Practice that bravery. Try. Trust self, trust others, and see what that looks like for you. Always practice self-care too, please. Uh, I'm all about your space of well-being. And whatever you need for that, go for it, go for it, go for it. So. That's the whole community agreements piece. Oh, 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 there we go. Back into some talking. So this is one of my favorite questions. Actually, this is my favorite question, if I'm being very honest. This is my absolute favorite question. I asked myself this question at 19 years of age, and it has literally been the question that has been the best gift of my life. It has spurred all of my learning across multiple dimensions and sectors. It has spurred all of my um, diggings and primings. And I mean, it, is, it has been the gift that keeps on giving in so many ways. Um, and so I still use it and I, for myself and with groups. So opening the floor for a larger group conversation, feel free to use the chat or uh, to raise your hand if you know how to raise the hand. If you don't know how to raise the hand, just feel free to come off mute. Uh, you know, this is an informal kickback. So. What makes us human? Also, while you're thinking about that, I'm gonna point out most people never get asked this question, but there's a demand on your humanity from the time you come out of the womb. People expect you to perform in certain ways and to learn and la 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 la. Michelle, go for it. Oh, Michelle, you unraised her. Which? Oh, Michelle Reed had raised their hand, but then they disappeared. But Michelle Kerr, if you would love to jump in, <laughs> go for it. I'm like, I'm so confused. I didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, the first thing I thought of when you when you said that was um, it's our capacity to make choices. Um, good or bad, we have the capacity to make a choice. Um, and, and I think I was thinking about animals who do things for survival um, animals lies in, in their natural habitat um, and humans have the ability and capacity to make choices that are not necessarily based on survival. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. And it's, you know, what I love about this question is like every answer can promote another question, right? Because when I think about choices, I go, but what's a choice? Because there are certain situations that we can live in or be in in life where, excuse how like intense of a, a metaphor this is, where it's almost like the choices that are before you is like, well, how would you like to, you know, experience pain today? Do you want to be cut with a thousand paper cuts? Would you like me to cut off your pinky toe? Or would you like me to dunk your head in a bunch of water over and over again so you can't breathe? And you're kind of like, well, wait a minute. I just, I actually, I don't want to experience pain. I want to live today. And it's like, nope, those are not your options. These are your options. What choice do you want to make, right? So just to make that whole choice thing so fascinating. And so I always ask myself, like, what the hell is a choice? Like, if you're a family of four, living in poverty at $26,000 a year, what's a choice? 
Also, if you're a family of four and you make $28,000 and you don't qualify for poverty, but the difference between $28,000 and $26,000 is like the difference between $0.25 cents and $0.24.99, cents, what, like, what, what are we talking about? What choices does that family have, right? Like, this gets into really interesting things um, in terms of questions and poking around for answers and how do you make sense of that type of stuff. And this is where we start to get into the space. Narrative intelligence. Diane, go for it. And good to see you. So I think what makes us human is our capacity to live not in the moment. Mm, say more. For, well, for good or bad, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I try to live in the moment, you know, I mean, obviously I have to plan for the future. I have to make sure there's enough money in my bank account to pay the rent, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, you know, I, I have two little pet dogs and, and they just live in the moment, you know, they, they don't worry about what's happening next. They don't fret over what has happened in the past. And I think, you know, I think a lot of Buddhist philosophies talk about this too, that, you know, we cannot change what happened and we can't really, you know, know what's going to happen next. And so the, the place to, to be is in the moment. Um, but I think as humans, you know, maybe it's hubris or I, who knows what, but, but we frequently don't live in the moment. We mull over what's happened. We fret over what's going to happen. And we don't just sit and be in the moment that we're in. And I think that's maybe something that, is to our detriment as humans as opposed to other creatures. That's a, I, I appreciate that reflection. Maria Ross said something very similar about consciousness and this idea that we look backward into the past and forward into the future. I would, um, you know, my take on that one in particular is like, it's an Achilles heel, right? Like, it's one of those things where if you think about the indigenous world, there are plenty of indigenous cultures um, that, particularly in the, in the Americas, who would plan for seven generations at a time, right? That kind of prospection can be very helpful in crafting and building a society that is not only just human-centered, but that is also thoughtful about the sharing of resources, sustainability, vitality of family units. What does it mean then to have family? How do you define family, right? Is it really just uh, uh, two partners and a couple of kids? Is it something larger? Is it bigger? And what role does the, the policy making right, play in designing for well-being and posterity of all the folks that live there? Right, That's a series of conversations you can have when you plan for seven generations at a time. Not for how we organize society, though, right? And given our ability to look backwards, it's interesting that we could be dipping backwards to bring some of that information forward to inform who we are, but we don't. And so there is this interesting balance of like, how do you live informed by the future and the past in ways that don't produce anxiety and a lack of ability to be present with the people who are around you? But how do you also, you know, stay with the fact that you're moving through time? So it's an interesting conundrum. Oh, I see the chat is popping up here. Let me let me just make sure I'm not missing anything. I'm asking new questions. What's the intent for the human? That's a great question. I'm going to throw that to you, Linda. What is the intent for the human? Hey, Mike. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. I mean, you know, we could go back to the Bible and look at that that whole biblical story, um, you know, caring for the, you know, for 
if I remember it correctly, caring for, you know, the earth, for the animals, um, caring for each other. We've not done a really good job of that. Um, and and I just don't know. The, the first question that came to me when I, when, when, when this, just before this question was, you know, it, I started thinking about our anatomy and it, what is it about our anatomy? You know, what sets us apart from others? So there's some obvious things there, but then the next question was, well, what was our intention? What was the intention? And it's just a question that I, I can't answer, but I think it's a really good question. I love That's it. That's all I got. I yeah, no, I love it. And I think to Susanna's point, um, I appreciated Susanna so much. What's fascinating to me when I ask this question, and again, we're starting to get into the pieces of narrative intelligence just bit by bit through experience here, um, you know, intentional design on my end. There's this interesting framing that most people tend to take by just asking what makes us human. What they process or hear in structure is what makes us human and that or them not human. But that's actually not the question. But that is the frame and the lens by which this question typically gets filtered and then starts the process of pooling information that you've got to try to come up with an answer. Because the reality is so much of our humanity is subsumed and the livelihood and well-being and literal DNA encoding of other living things, both vegetative and non-vegetative. We share a un unimaginable amount of DNA in common with vegetative life. People wouldn't even think that, right? Earthworms wouldn't even think that. Mice, right? We forget that there's a reason why we can have them in a laboratory and glean a lot about the human brain and social relationships given uh, you know, the context of how they're structured, how they work, them being mammals, et cetera. Like, there is a lot we have in common with so much here. But the question gets filtered typically through what makes us human and them not human, which I always have found fascinating. Uh, Sharon, I see your hand. Hi, Michael. Um, well, I think, so my thoughts around this is similar, and it, it may even connect to Linda's question about what makes us human? What's the intent of human? It, for me, it all stems from love. Our ability to love, our ability to share our love, our ability to love ourselves. Um, our, it's, it's really what drives and motivates most decisions that we make every single day. And so that for me is uh, kind of the answer to both of those questions in, in that uh, it's our capacity to love ourselves and others and the way that we do that and also the ways that we don't do that, you know, which are some, in many cases, motivated by the opposite of that, which is not hate, but is fear. So those are my thoughts. I love it. Thank you so much, Sharon. And Sharon, piggybacking on that with, um, let's see, where's Ashley's point, right? there. So there are some not so rosy parts of our humanity as well, right? I think there, there's an interesting thing that also happens with this question typically. And now with you all, I'm taking even more time to dig into this. But typically I do this really fast with folks who just have them spit out lists. Because what typically happens is the first list that pops up, and this actually happened here generically too, empathy, altruism, kindness, the capacity for care. We go down the list and then I have to pop in and go, these are great and these are true. We have a shadow side. What are some other things that are present in our humanity? And people are all right, we jealousy, shaming, right? Like there's, there's other things that's a violence, right? There are things that pop up. Again, they're not necessarily, necessarily so ubiquitously human, 
that they're not showing up anywhere else in creation, if you will, right? Or, or in, you know, the ecological systems we're a part of. But it's interesting also there's some deference. We, I would even argue it's a form of optimism bias. There's some deference towards the niceties of our humanity. So there are too often too early frames with a question like this. What makes us human and that or them not human? And the flip side, uh, or not flip side, the other thing is there's this deference towards our goodness. I like to call it the mythos of our goodness. Right. So thank you for indulging me in that. We can keep coming back to this. Um, is 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 helpful uh, if, or not helpful? Um, right. And the questioning of us. Love it. So I'm going to move into this next exercise. So now we're going to put you back in breakout groups. But I want you to do something for me. We're going to listen to A House Is Not A Home. Um, also, Devin's going to drop the lyrics to A House Is Not A Home into the chat box. And I have a simple question for you. Uh, is a house a home? Why or why not? Very simple question. But maybe not so simple after all. We'll see. And this is in no way meant to endorse any kind of heteronormative relationships or anything like that. This is about poetic license of a writer who's explaining some design principles and techniques that are core to some of the mechanics of our humanity and in a way that we all get but don't often think about in reflection of how we design teams how we design spaces and places workshops etc so with that said i'm going to play this video and uh, then we'll put you in these breakout groups for a chat so i'm going to add one other question to your to your uh breakout ch chat or breakout group and that is what is empathy so is a house a home why or why not and then once you finish that, tip in the, well, what is empathy? How do you define empathy? Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, welcome back. So, one of the things that I would love to have happen, you know, feel free to drop thoughts into the chat um, regarding your opinions and thoughts around empathy, um, et cetera. One of the things um, that I want to point out here in getting to some of the subject matter and the title uh, the limitations of empathy. I'm going to give you one of the first major limitations of empathy is that depending on who's doing the research, you're going to get a different definition. <laughs> <laughs> empathy yeah. has no static definition at all. Um, it's just the reality of the context of what uh, academia is and how it works. Um, I've read a lot of the research literature on empathy. And one of the main issues is that the literal definition shifts from researcher to researcher or from one school of thought to another to another. I'll give you a quick example of that and what I'm referring to. So there are some researchers that say that empathy is about essentially this idea of emotional resonance. Can I feel what you're feeling? And that's, that takes the cake. There are other researchers that say that's not empathy. Empathy is when that resonance of feeling results in an activity or a behavior that is on the behalf of someone else starts to pull into the uh, excuse me pull the dimension of altruism and altruistic behavior and this idea of emotional behaviors into that space. 
who's right or who's wrong? Oh, let's get even more complicated. Go to business school. You're going to get taught perspective taking in a negotiations class. That is not empathy. And then there are other researchers that will tell you that perspective taking is one component of empathy, right? Like, so who's right, who's wrong? Who gets to set the limits? This is intense. So when we get to just like pop science colloquial life, and we're all like, empathy! I mean, this is a mess. This is an absolute mess. And now we're trying to solve for equity and justice. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm getting a, I get headaches regularly trying to sift through this and everybody's language and what they're researching. I'm like, oh my Lord, what is... So I've actually gotten to this point where I'm like, maybe we actually need to start being very clear about the limitations of both the colloquial and the academic construct of empathy as we know it, be honest about that, and then start to talk about those tensions as it relates to the work we're doing. I think it'll open up more space for better research that's about praxis, right? Where does practice and research meet each other in service of some of these larger issues that we have? But we're getting nothing right now. No disrespect to anyone doing this work. I do DEI work too. I get it. But I don't know how much headway we're getting right now with all this empathy stuff because people are thinking that writing an essay as a corporate citizen and resonating with feelings that you have about someone's you know, inequitable experience is empathy and i'm like no that does not to me this is where i started to put on my right and wrong hat for a moment i'm like absolutely not the power dimensions right we do a power analysis if you are in charge and i have clients and colleagues that i work with who have lots of funds to hand out and all kinds of things when you're in a position of say like you have an employee or, a, or excuse me in a workforce that's 50,000 people your thought on empathy matters a lot from a power analysis perspective because the design imperatives that you're tied to and the things that you can enact and put into operation are disproportionate to the average resident uh, in this country, right? And so what does that mean, right? We have to have power analysis alongside all these other things that we're doing. So I think that empathy outside of some of these other ideas I'm talking for, talking about is maybe not as helpful as we want it to be. And again, maybe, I'm not happy for pushback. But that is one major, major limitation around empathy. The other major limitation is that there are some biological conundrums. <laughs> There's some biological things that make empathy hard. It's already hard because we're not exactly sure what it is, but we kind of have a boat of a guess. But then you get into some of the mechanics of our humanity and these things get more complicated, right? This goes back to some of what I was talking about earlier or in the question and uh, thought process we were going through around what makes us human. Um, it's interesting if we can't even really fully define our humanity at large, and then you want me to empathize with someone else and see them as human, this kind of like, we're kind of always working with like one hand tied behind our back here. And it just gets a little more complex the more we add on other complications from a biological perspective in terms of, again, the mechanics of our humanity. And what I mean by that is, you know, our emotions, just to be brief, our emotions come with a number of biological correlates, neurotransmitters, hormones, connectivity in the brain between the rest of the body. There's a whole stress mechanism in there we call the HPA axis. Like there's a whole lot that goes on in the body with emotions and experiences. And all of that is influencing the meaning you make out of a thing and how you see things. 
at this point, I'm going to go back to sharing my screen because I'm talking about the mechanics of my humanity, of our humanity, excuse me, and I want to show you a slide. Um, so from this end of trying to ground ourselves in something that can help us push the limits around what we think about empathy and also help us better understand how we might be able to contextualize the use of narrative intelligence and in moving towards an experience and idea of empathy that is much more practice-based and not just theoretical or bouncing from section to section of sectors of uh, you know, academia. The first thing I like to root folks in is like whatever journey we're going on to figure out our humanities, if we're going to look at this from a systems perspective and the design perspective and think about our role, the intent, to Linda's point, I don't know what the intent of human beings are in terms of a, a construct of a biological being, but the dope part about it is that I can make up an intention and then live that out, right? And doing this in reverse, I'm going to start with this dimension of the spiritual. Human beings, this is the health sciences model of human development. The spiritual dimension, that's the, and I represent that by this big ocean in the background that all the concentric circles in the middle are subsumed in. The spiritual dimension is the most complex because it's the dimension of meaning making. It's spiritual as it relates to meaning making, not spirituality as it relates to religion. Religion's an anthropological tool. I think humans made that to house meaning because we had to contend with really large subjects that we couldn't make sense of. Life and death, trauma happening even when you don't want it to happen, go down the list, right? The, the, why does the sun move the way it moves? What's the, why do I throw something in the air and it falls back down? I mean, we have a million stories across the planet and a million ways to organize answers to these ideas. But again, religion is different than meaning making. You are a creature of meaning making. Humans make meaning out of everything. Even if you don't want to make meaning out of something, you will make meaning out of something. And you'll typically also put meaning where you don't have the information provided. This is where we get into the issue around bias, because one of the major triggers for social cognitive bias is not having enough information or meaning. Your brain is not built to operate in, in, in holes of information. H-O-L-E-S. So what it does is grab from everything it got, it's got and everything it thinks it knows and understands to create a different kind of hole, a W-H-O-L-E. And it's built on guesses, assumptions, thoughts, mental models, beliefs about the world, your experiences, stuff that you've been informed by through larger culture and media, etc. And it's going to pull, pull from this pool of information, there's a variety of sources, to land you with a whole, W-H-O-L-E, idea about a thing. And this is where it gets tricky because it feels right, but it's not necessarily accurate or factual. But this is a part of your body's meaning-making apparatus. Now, what I also explained to you is jumping to the opposite side is that there's a lot of biology in this meaning-making apparatus. So your humanity is not just in the dimension of meaning-making. At a very basic level, it's super physiological. If I cut you, you bleed, right? Like it's there. there are some really basic but complex biological processes, a ton, that are cascading and running around and happening in your body at the same time that there are psychological processes and things happening at the same time that, and this is one of the unique things about mammals in particular, mammals are social creatures. Our biology and our psychology and our meaning making are forever tied together with our social nature. We cannot escape the social nature of our being, so much so that if you leave infants alone for a long enough time, they will literally die. If you don't touch them enough, they will literally not be healthy. We are very complex beings that are at the minimal 
developing in these four concurring, excuse me, four co-occurring dimensions at the same time, and they're dynamic. They're influencing one another. And what I submit to you is that dehumanization is when we begin to deny at least one, but often multiple categories of these development, excuse me, developmental dimensions, we deny their reality in other people's lives. And that's what we've been taught to do. That's what we've been socialized to do. There are policies that have been made historically that deny these dimensions of people's humanity. You can read a book called Medical Apartheid just to get on the biological end, the denial of humanity of black and brown people and women and why it was okay to do certain types of medical experiments on them in the 1800s with no anesthesia because there was a complete and total suppression and denial of their, the, the biological dimensions of their humanity, let alone anything else. And that's just, again, I, that's a super simple, quick example, but this happens over time in mass often. So rooting ourselves in this context that humans develop in four co-occurring dynamic dimensions that last across the lifetime, that last across the lifespan, let's turn our focus back, and that empathy is tricky, let's turn our focus back to a house is not a home. What that song is pointing out is that there are multiple considerations that we need to think about and hold when we want to consider well-being and, and designing for well-being and designing with intentionality for human well-being. There are some things we got to hold in context with one another, but having the right buckets to help us frame what we hold is really helpful. The first thing that we can design with purpose that that song points out is space. And we can talk about space in terms of built environments, environments that are human made, or found environments, environments that are naturally occurring. Oh, slip the slide. Space, or excuse me, place is a little bit different. Place is what a space becomes when it is brought to life and activated by people, ideas, things you're doing, activities, meaning. A house is not a home is about that very subject matter. The home was something different when they were together and it became something else when they broke up. Same physical structure, but because of what was done in space, the place was something else. So this brings us to another thing that we can design with intentionality, which are relationships, the quality and patterns of inter and interactions, excuse me, the quality and patterns of interactions we have with other people, objects, and even the very design and usage of space. You have a relationship with the design and uses of space already in ways that you don't often think about consciously. So as an example of that, I'm gonna ask you a quick question and anyone can pop off mute and answer this. Generically, generically, when you walk into a grocery store, what section of the grocery store do you expect to walk into? The produce section. Produce, you would expect maybe there's some hot food around. You might expect that there's fruits, right? You, that's typically the section you expect to walk into no matter where you're at in the country. There are some exceptions, don't get me wrong, but the majority you expect to walk into produce. And the other thing that you can actually do if you think about it now is you could probably map the perimeter of the store because most grocery stores are laid out the same way. It's laid out in such a way that you can navigate with the assistance of some special tools, right? Signage, um, of any kind, whether it's pictorial or in words, right? That, that people are able to generically 
maneuver through and navigate a grocery store without needing a walkie-talkie to talk to customer service for every space you're trying to go to get something you need. And you don't need to, or you don't need like your personal customer service person walking with you no matter where you're at. That's an example of the design of space um, and the use of design assets, again, signage, et cetera, to help you do something that's called wayfinding. Hospitals are built like this, right? That you have signage and a layout of the space that generically you can find your way to a restroom even if you don't talk to somebody. Talking to somebody will help you, but generically laid out so that you don't have to. Malls are built this way often, right? There's a map, it's in a grid, you can navigate yourself through it without having to always go to a customer service space to be like, listen, I need to get here, here, and here, and someone walks you to every spot. Again, this is an example of wayfinding. What I want to submit to you is that people have to do something very fascinating in society. They have to do a type of psychosocial, a type of psychological and social wayfinding in many spaces and in many places that most people are not considering because their identities are not shared in many different ways. I'll give you an example. I'm a cisgendered man. I'm black, but I'm a cisgendered man. Cisgender means that I agree with the assignment of my sex at birth, that I was assigned male at birth, and I agree with that. I line up with that. If I were non-binary, that would mean I might have been born, in terms of my anatomy, a male to society, but I don't identify as male, but I don't identify as female either. I identify as non-binary or I don't identify as a man or a woman. I identify as non-binary, right? So there are different ways that people can identify. And so as a cis man, that means I identify with the gender that was assigned to me at birth. What that also means is that based on that identity, I don't know the experiences of women, trans folks, non-binary folks, when they have to do things like go into a workspace that's dominated by cisgendered men. I don't know what it's like for a woman to have to show up in a room to do a presentation and there's 20 men, cis men sitting there and she's the only woman in the room. I don't know what that's like. I have no idea how she has to navigate the kind of discredibility that people heap on women in corporate spaces or who go after leadership roles. Now, we start to layer in other identities on top of that woman, uh, you know, the woman-based identity there. So let's say it's a black woman. Oh, there's a whole other layer of things going on there besides just the woman thing that that person has to navigate through in space and place and in time. That again, as a cisgender man, I don't get, I don't know. I don't know that experience. One of the definitions in the word privilege is immunity. It's actually the, the part of the definition we spend the least amount of time talking about. We spend more time talking about whether or not someone has special rights or advantages, right? So the typical definition of uh, immunity you'll find in a dictionary is um, a, special a special right, advantage, or an immunity that is given to a person or provided to a person. We spend more time on special rights and advantages and get lost in like, well, I did or I didn't, versus have we interrogated what I might be immune from in society as related to social ills, et cetera, that someone else might not be immune from? Am I immune to navigating space in a certain way compared to another person? Am I immune to navigating certain places 
compared to another person based on identity. And the fascinating part here is you actually can't dig into the nuance of that without getting into narrative, without getting into an understanding of the relationship between stories and narratives. And this is where narrative intelligence is absolutely primary and I believe core to the future of this country. So I feel like I just said a lot, so I want to make some space in case anyone has a question before I continue. Yeah, Maria. Yeah, hi. I, I'm I'm loving what you're saying because it's sparking all these different um, ways to look at this. And this idea of immunity is such a like aha moment for me. I mean, we talk about the fact that, you know, with privilege, privilege also means do you even have to think about this thing from the moment that you wake up until the moment you go to sleep? You know, you get you always get the answer. I'm not privileged. I've worked for everything I have. It's like, yeah, but have, did you have to think about ra- your race from the moment that you woke up, the color of your skin from the moment you woke up to the moment you went to bed? Um, so I love that you define that for for me and probably for many of us. Um, how, how do you avoid the trap of of groups creating, you know, narrative is like a buzzword now that people throw around like optics, you know, and I, I come from the marketing world. So, yeah. you know, it's like, what's the narrative, right? People are, people think it's the spin. So mm. how do you differentiate narrative from spin? And also how do you avoid weaponizing narrative? And yeah, I don't know if there's an answer, but obviously people, there are people in our country and in our world that are weaponizing narrative. A hundred percent. I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Those are great questions. In fact, you're you're like teeing me up purposely. I'm going to... <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, no, that was great. And I said, let's just jump right here, right? And the one thing I want to do is take one step back in this area because I do want to talk about bias in this space for two seconds because bias and narratives and stories, like all of this stuff is so interrelated, right? So for context, Bias is a problem-solving and survival mechanism for the body. You can't escape it, right? Now, let's get into nuance. Heuristics are shortcuts that the brain creates over time. Right? Your brain, the, the dope part about the human brain is that it wants to conserve energy, right? Our brains are ex- metabolically, brains are expensive to the body in terms of energy. So one of its core things over time is like, it's got to save energy, right? So your brain is, I don't want to say it's the only organism. It might be the, or not organism, but um, organ, excuse me. I think it might be our only organ that literally gets smaller and like denser, but works better over time. If it's not the only, it's one of few in the body. So one of the ways it conserves energy is by patterns and building of patterns and structures and recognition of these things. So heuristics are part of that, right? You build these shortcuts over time to solve problems and make judgments quickly. Right. So implicit bias, we've all heard it. I, this is going to sound kind of controversial. And you'll give me two seconds. Don't no one bite my head off. Implicit bias is actually getting a bad rep biologically. And I'll tell you why. It is true that there are attitudes and stereotypes that affect our understanding, actions, decisions in an unconscious manner. They encompass both favorable and unfavorable assessments. It's activated involuntarily. You don't know it's happening. You don't have intentional control. It is deep in the subconscious. But here's the kicker. It's different than the biases that are known that individuals can choose to hide for the purposes of social and political correctness. And what I am experiencing and seeing in the world over and over again is there are things that are very explicit biases that people are calling implicit biases and kind of hiding behind the shadow curtain going, I I did not know I did not want to hire black people. I did not know. 
I did not know I didn't want to pay women equally. I had no idea. I've just had the balance sheet for 30 years and looked at all my employees and knew the women weren't getting paid equally. But I didn't know it was an implicit bias. Please put me in a training and give me a test. And I'm like, wait a minute now. This is not, that is not okay. These are not the same things, right? But people are really getting away with this. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Being quiet is not the same thing as implicit. But those two things have become kind of synonymous in this quick DEI turnaround world. And I'm like, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Let's bring some science to the table. Let's clean this up. Let's be clear. So with that said, and when we start talking about narratives, etc., people are purposely impacting, changing, constructing, playing with narratives as an example to me of explicit bias in action. It's not in the back of their minds. <laughs> they know what they're doing. It's on purpose, right? So with that said, though, there are two other constructs here that are part of this that we got to think about. Mental models, a representation of some domain or situation that supports understanding, reasoning, and prediction. Mental models permit reasoning about situations not directly experienced. They allow people to mentally simulate the behaviors of systems as well, right? And Mental models are often, not all the time, but often based on generalizations and analogies from experiences. They're not always accurate. You start building mental models practically from birth. Your brain is just coming online and getting filled with understanding or meaning making, and you're figuring out your place in the world versus others, etc. Like you're making, you're literally constructing mental models over time from birth. And the accumulation of those mental models over time create your worldview, the set of fundamental beliefs that you have about reality, how things work. It influences all of your perceiving, knowing, and doing. Similar to a mental model, but a little more heavier because it's, again, the, the culmination of all the mental models you have that are producing your worldview. And this is where narrative intelligence is fascinating, right? So narratives are different than stories. And the key to understanding mental models that you have that might be of an implicit nature is to dig into the narratives that exist in your life and what stories back them up. Now, with that said, a story in its simplest form is about characters and the things that happen to them. Uh, Michael Lewis says a story is about people and situations. Stories have a beginning, middle, and end. Now. Stories are where we explore desires, challenges, choices a character face, right? So myths fit into this space, fables, fiction stories, etc. A great piece of advice was to think of stories as an anecdote or vignette that recounts specific moments with time and place. Create shared emotional experiences you can bond, but a story is different than a narrative. Narratives are much bigger. Narratives are ways of looking at the world. They're overarching ideas and concepts that influence thought, meaning, and decision making. So think about symbolic frames like the American dream, the welfare queen. Those are narratives. Narratives do not have a clear beginning, middle, and end like a story. Rather, they're unfolding over time. And this is one of the best examples I've seen of a metaphor of the relationship between story and narrative. Stories are like a pearl and the necklace of all the pearls together, the string of pearls, that's the narrative. So a good narrative And by good, I just mean impactful, not good in terms of intentionality. Good narrative will use a range of stories to illustrate, animate, and validate its message. Narratives give meaning to a broader vision, a view of what's possible, and why we should head in that direction. Now, 
I'm gonna stop sharing my screen for a minute so we can all be face to face here. Nothing about this says that narratives cannot be weaponized and we live in a society where they point blank, 100%, all the time. Left, the right, local politicians, corporations, like 24-7. What I wanna submit to you as an example is when you look at something um, uh, the story of like the welfare queen narrative, there are a ton of stories that back that up and they're not all factual. Or they take a couple of facts and heavily distort them. But the branding and messaging and the persistence of that narrative because it's striking emotional tones makes it very durable. And it's so impactful that when Barack Obama was president, they didn't even need to come up with stories exactly around the welfare queen myth. They just had to come up with another clever phrase. So they used the food stamp president. And I remember hearing that and going, that is brilliant. Sinister, but absolutely brilliant. That is the power of narrative intelligence. Now the flip side is you can use narrative intelligence for good things. And by good, I am talking about the intentionality of good which does get a little dicey because there are some people that would say it is good to be fiscally conservative. And so we are pushing these narratives, et cetera, to make sure that we are thoughtful. So like, I'll even change my language. There's a way to use narrative to promote the well-being of more than a couple of specific groups. But it has to start with the fact that we don't actually know how to be that inclusive as a group with everybody. Michelle, I see your comment here. I know you sent it to me directly, but I think it's a good point. Can I share it with the group? Sure, sure. So Michelle shared that she's struggling with the analogy of the pearl being the story and the necklace being the narrative. She said, it would seem to me that the pearl has a beginning and an end is the story, but the oyster is the narrative. I think I hear where you're going. I think the hard part with the oyster is that the oyster as a biological entity can die. Not that the pearl necklace can't break, but it's outside of the realm of time around like life and death. And that's this weird thing about narratives, right? Um, and I'm glad you brought this up because one of, in, in other workshops I do, we talk about the power of ecosystems, right? So we talked today about human development in these four dimensions that are co-occurring. Um, in other workshops, I bring that up and then I bring up this idea of ecosystems and environments at the like, self-organizing biological systems level and dimension and like look at the three main characteristics of any ecosystem and there are some nuances there that are interesting because one of them is that um ecosystems are made up of the interactions of living and non-living things and i introduced this question of like is a story living or not living is a narrative alive or not alive like because one of the questions we can ask well Let's look at beginnings. When did the story about women being bad at engineering, science, and math begin? When will it end? Yikes. You know, it gets into this really interestingly weird territory. When did the narrative about black people being violent start? That's my other favorite one. That somehow, that is it's one of the best branding jobs in history, is that black people are vi inherently violent. Fascinating how that has taken shape, placed all the media tools behind it. Even when we were still basically enslaved, somehow we were the violent ones. Fascinating. 
and that has not left. And now you introduce gun violence, which only has maybe 30, at most 40 years worth of data, and we are still branded as violent. And yes, I love the concept. Even with the data, the narrative can live on. And this is the thing about narrative intelligence. Narrative intelligence is the way that you can take data and make sense of a large complexity. But it's also the space, like Maria Ross pointed out, where with clever marketing and manipulation, it's not even that you're telling whole lies. You just cherry pick certain things and use the power of narrative and history to shape. We have to bring ourselves into the space of narrative intelligence and the understanding of the limitations of empathy because we are relying on empathy as this faculty that's supposed to do a whole bunch of work that actually narrative strategists and narrative intelligence, excuse me, the folks dealing with narrative intelligence, are they're not operating in that space. Again, whether it's branding, marketing, whether it's political um, campaigning work, whether it's fundraising work, Diane, uh, do you want to talk about your comment? Because I think that's a great comment. Which one? About uh, oh, asking sorry. the right questions? Yeah, with bias. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know how to expand, expand on it. The, I think so much of the way we categorize, the way we approach situations is so deeply informed by our own experience, you know, that, 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 I mean, every, you know, we look, we look at the world through eyes that are, are filled with bias, you know, it's the bias that, that, you know, might be hardwired after, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution, or it's the bias that we learned from our community, you know, or our family of origin or from the media, right? Um, you know, so, right. So, so how do we even know, like, what questions are the really important ones? I think, you know, like in the development of the, the you know, the, the COVID vaccines, right? I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of effort to get a more representative universe of, of research subjects than initially the drug trials were including, right? I mean, there were, there were not enough people of color and, and, you know, I think it was the NIH or whatever said to these, you know, said to the, the pharma companies, you have to enroll more people of color because how can we, how can we tell this narrative of why this is important to people who we didn't check it on? And, you know, you look at all the medical research that's been done for decades in the past on, 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 on heart drugs and all these other things. I mean, forget about all the atrocious things that were deliberately done to people, but just, just to not enroll people in, in, in drug trials because they just weren't, you know, I mean, and the same thing is true of women, you know, I mean, women have different kind of responses to, to, to everything than, than, than men, you know, so, so who is asking the questions? I think, I think whenever, you know, it's really important to try to get enough people into the room together to frame the question. I think that's where we really have to start. Um, you know, yeah. because no matter, no matter how much I want to be able to see a certain, a certain situation, you know, in a, in a, in an unbiased way, unfiltered, I, I have my biases. And even if I work hard to not be, be, um, you know, sort of led by them, there's just other perspectives that I just don't have. I have a, I have a, a lack of information, a lack of perspective and no imagination in the world is going to, 
provide me with what somebody else's experience, you know, can can present. So, you know, I don't know how we start getting more people in the room, more people at the table, but uh, that's that's really, you know, I think that's the key, and and we have to be willing to let go of our our fear around that and let other people in the room, you know, and other people into the conversation who, who we might be afraid of, you know, who we might feel threatened by. And, and that's, a, that's a very hard thing to do. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing all that. I think it's a great point. You know, one of the reason I wanted you to share that, because it brings up a great segue for me in terms of like some of the framing, because we're getting to, to time, but we've, we've hit on a number of the points. I got a couple of things I want to show you, but like we've hit the main points. There is, I, I won't say that there is no such thing as truly objective research. What I will say is that overwhelmingly, because of the way the bias mechanism, if you will, works in the body, or the mechanisms that you know cascade and work together to make what we call bias a thing, um, I just live in the space that all research is biased. Because remember, you can have a bias towards things in an unfavorable or a favorable way. I am biased towards an idea of shared humanity, 100%. That's an explicit bias. I will always err on that side in my research, absolutely. I will always err on the side that women should be honored in society as much as men. Like, yes, that is an explicit bias that I have towards something that I believe in and think is favorable, right? Like that, I, I think it's important that we just sit in those realities and as a researcher, I am clear about that. It informs me in very specific ways. And I'm going to put forward this idea of um, epistemology, right? How do you know what you know? How do we know what we know? How do we, what is knowledge? Right? These are the questions that are under this uh, philosophical branch of research and thought called epistemology. What data and tools validate what we claim to know? Who gets to say what's data at that point? And who gets to say what's not? Who gets to say who's at the table determining what is valid data and what are not valid data, right? That, that is a thing. These are things that we have to consider. And so there's this concept I use, epistemic justice and epistemic integrity, right? We have no epistemic integrity when we talk about gun violence in black communities at large. Because the conversation always starts at why black people are violent, basically. Or that we just love killing ourselves. And I'm just like, that, geez, this is so biased and shady, right? And that is, for me, a thing, right? We're not, there's no real historical analysis. It's the same way we look at addiction in this country, particularly the heroin epidemic. Intense. So there's this space for me around epistemic justice. And then there's something called ontology, right? So ontology is the branch of, branch of philosophy that looks at once you have a thing, anything, what are the constituent parts that make it up and how? what are the relationships to one another? How does it work? How does it facilitate the doing of, the, of what it is, right? Whatever that construct or thing is. So epistemology is like, what are the corners on the puzzle? Ontology is when all the puzzle pieces are put together and you can see how they fit and how they work together. I don't know that we have ontological integrity either. We, we're not very honest about the way that things work together to produce the results that we get. And empathy is a tricky piece in there because we would love to believe that, oh, I can feel that thing that you feel. And I don't know that that's, oh, yikes, the biology there is a little, a little tricky. It's hard to empathize with people that don't look like you. And that's just not white to black and black to white. 
It is hard to empathize with people. Let me rephrase that. It's hard to empathize with people that are not like you. Looks being one major dimension, right? Skin color, gender identity, you know, generic cultural. Um, we call it cultural legibility. Like we're taught what gender looks like. So it's very easy to misgender a person if you just go off of what you see as opposed to asking a question. And even then you gotta be careful. So it's easier to leave with, hi, my name is Mike, my pronouns are he, him, and have someone reciprocate than asking someone, how do you identify exactly? And even that's a better question than what are you? Because people ask that too, and that's a little intense. Maria, I see you're him, my bad. So I just wanted to clarify to make sure I'm tracking with what you're mm -hmm. saying. So are you are you overall, are you saying narrative intelligence is being able to be discerning about how we consume narratives and that we need to be a little bit more thoughtful in how, and, and is that a skill that people can develop? Absolutely. Okay. Part of doing that is developing media literacy skills because it's the 21st century and yeah. content is like everywhere, right? But yes, one aspect of narrative intelligence, to be very clear, is what you just said. Another aspect of narrative intelligence, if we think about mental models, I'm gonna share some slides again really quickly. If we think about mental models, there are mental models that we've inherited at large as a society, the American dream being one of them, right? Um, there is a narrative we've inherited about our species. It's even in our name, Homo sapiens sapiens. We're wise, we're knowing. Is that true? Who gets, who gets to say what wisdom is? Because when we travel down American history, this wisdom is fraught with all kinds of chaos. What you're looking at here, I call the foundational modern myths of humanity. I also call it the mythos of our modern humanity. On the right, you are looking at Lewis Terman pointed out in the middle there. Let's see if my cursor works. Yep, this guy. Lewis Terman is both the father of the gifted child movement at the same time that he is one of the main um, proponents of eugenics. It is Lewis Terman that took the Stanford Binet IQ test, and, excuse me, that took the Binet IQ test from France, updated it, it became known as the Stanford Binet IQ test because that's where he was tenured at Stanford. And that test was then used to push eugenics, to push tracking in public education, to determine who was considered in his language mentally feeble, who should not procreate. And he's very clear about this. He wrote an entire book called The Measurements of Intelligence. And some of the comments that come out of there are wild. But you know what's fascinating? The Stanford Binet IQ test is literally the basis of almost every IQ test we have. So the fact that we use something like the SATs in America, out of pocket, absolutely out of line. So can I ask a follow-up to that then? Yeah. Because this is all fascinating, but it's also leaving me really bereft and sad. About mm -hmm. How do we, I mean, not that you can sum it up in a minute, but then how do we know what to trust? How can we ever parse out narratives that are true like i feel a little hopeless hearing all this is what i'm saying <laughs> well, no, no, i hear you i so i start from the end that whatever has been created can be undone mm -hmm. right like every fire can actually be put out it might take a while but you can put it out so i i hope here on my end the hope is if you don't know what the actual starting place is what solution are you creating as a designer problem framing is most of the job 
because if you don't have the problem framed accurately, everything else you do afterwards does not matter. You're building solutions that just literally don't work, which is what we do in society, right? So this book on the left called Hitler's American Model blew my mind. James Whitman is a scholar, legal scholar at Yale and traces the history of Nazi race law and the stated comments of the, of the creators of Nazi race law that they based it on American race law and in certain cases deviated from what Americans did in terms of their race law construction because it was deemed too inhumane. We need to sit with that reality and truth because the mythos about American goodness has us look at the last two to 300 to 400 years and say, well, yeah, we had slavery and stuff and we had like, you know, we, the Chinese Exclusion Act, but it wasn't that bad. And then our positionality on the global stage actually is something very different. But we can't even get to the reality of what's happening right now because most of us don't understand the history of eugenics as a mass movement. Lewis Terman is but one of many players. Every academic institution was involved. The, pi the private sector was involved. Public policy was involved. Entertainment was involved. If you really want to get into a book on this, Illiberal Reformer by Thomas Leonard, good grief. But it's sobering because it's clarifying. And now we can start to develop, really, honestly, we have to develop new narratives. But you got to understand this mechanics of our humanity piece to really be thoughtful about what it means. And I'm going to show you, um, there's a slide I skipped earlier based on what we are uh, talking about. But here we go. If you really want to get into creating the hope, part of it means you have to recenter someone's humanity, which means you've got to consider those four dimensions of their humanity in the context of other constructs that you're not taught to naturally think about on their behalf. How many men are taught to think about the psychological well-being of women at work? How many of us are taught to think about the psychological risk or harm of certain types of environments? for black women at work. Actually, many of us have been socialized to think of certain groups of people as complaining too much like black women. So when they do voice an opinion, are we willing to consider that they might be talking about risk or harm in one of those four categories of their dimensions of humanity? Or are we just writing it off based on these narratives that we have that inform us of how to understand people, groups, and systems? So part of this work is about interrogating the narratives that you have about groups of people, about systems and processes. How, do you, how did you come to know what you know and believe what you believe? And that's deeper work. But the, my hope here is that as you begin to experience like, oh my God, this is really intense. At the same time, you can go, I have to do something about this. And if all I can do is interrogate my own narratives, interrogate my own belief systems, begin to, because through the interrogation of your narratives and why you believe what you believe, you are now actually interrogating mental models. And the great thing about mental models, and I invite you all to read on something called debiasing techniques, you can't get rid of your body's bias mechanism or the mechanisms that create bias. But what you can do is adopt techniques and purposeful mental models, right? So there are mental models that you've developed over time, but there are other mental models that you can literally pick up, put on and try out to break up the thinking that results in bias-based outcomes and outputs. You can also prevent it from happening by adopting and practicing different types of debiasing techniques and methodologies.
this is all here for our taking. There's more research to be done in terms of like creating more and seeing how impactful they are, but we're not starting from ground zero in the space of debiasing techniques for individuals and groups. The question about larger society gets harder, and that's where the power analysis comes into play and really matters. But you know, I use an African proverb that says to, to ground me in a lot of stuff, and it says, "How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time." <laughs> like that's all. That's all I can do is legitimately one bite at the time. So great, Mike. Oh my gosh. I'm loving it. And I, I know this is different and deeper and we've really dove, in, dove into the complexity of the topic and the conversation, which I love. It's really different than other Possibility Project episodes where we'll have like multiple guests and panelists and, you know, talking about dysfunction and hope. And I, I love, um, just all the ways that you've stimulated so much of our thinking and our future learning, right? I hope that this has really just got all of our brains juicy about what we've learned from you and then how we keep growing and expanding from this point and all the additional research that we will do. Um, so with the five minutes that are left, um, how do you want to wrap us up, Mike? So I would love for you to think about empathy in a particular kind of way, right? So I'm going to wrap you up by sharing that with you. So a great way to interrogate your own narratives and your own even sense of empathy in moments is ask yourself, what am I telling myself about, or what story am I telling myself about the experience that I'm having right now, et cetera, et cetera. Brene Brown talks about this, but this is a, a trick in psychotherapy with the self, not a trick, it's a tool. Interrogate, what story am I telling myself about the experience I'm having right now? What story am I telling myself about what just happened or what might happen? The other thing we can do, and this comes from the world of trauma-informed care and practice, is to shift from frames of what's wrong with a thing or a person to what's happened to a thing or a person or a system, right? This is a form of narrative intelligence again, because we're digging into content, story, what's transpired, right? And then what meaning has been made from what's transpired. Empathy is an opportunity. And I look at it as if we think about not getting lost in identities, but getting more about more, excuse me, attuned to someone's emotional experience. And what I mean by that is this. You heard me talk about like, I'm not a woman or a trans person or a non-binary person. I'm a cisgender male. I only know that experience. So I actually don't know what it's like to be in any of those other identities and have to exist in a workplace dominated by men or walk down the street in a major city and potentially be accosted because of the really open, unfortunate way that we're kind of allow we kind of allow people to be sexually violent toward women, trans people, and non-binary folks. I don't know that journey. And I can't put myself in their identity. The same way I've never had cancer and I can't put myself in that social experience. I don't know what it's like, or medical experience. I don't know what it's like to have cancer. And to assume that I can actually can unfortunately diminish somebody's experience. It can start to um, silence them. It can do all kinds of things that are not necessarily helpful to that person and about their well-being. So rather than getting lost in social identity experiences to find a bridge, I actually start the other end. I might not know what it's like to be a woman, but I do know what it's like to be in a room, excuse me, to be a woman in a boardroom and not be heard. I do know what it's like. I don't know that experience, but I do know the emotional experience of feeling minimized and diminished or feeling powerless. And so if I actually listen and bear witness to another person without interrupting them and trying to find these points of connection, if I just listen and ask 
active listening kinds of questions to really begin to identify what emotional experiences they're pointing at and then locate that emotional experience on the inside of me, now I've actually got a much better bridge that's more accurate than trying to put myself in the shoes of a white woman in a boardroom or put myself in the shoes of a migrant, you know, Mexican farm worker. I don't know that experience. I've not lived it. Now, once I've identified those emotional experiences, I can communicate to that person, wow, that sounds like powerlessness. Is that is that what you're feeling? Is that what you're describing? And if they say, yes, I know I'm right, right? Or I know I at least have a dimension of that that's right. Now I have to also put the lens of, I only know in part because I know powerlessness through how I experienced it and the core of my identities. So while I have this bridge that's accurate, I also know it's still limited in its scope of understanding. So I still don't understand that person's experience in full because that powerlessness might be magnified times five based on their identities or more based on their identities in the way that is occurring for them. But again, this emotional bridge keeps me out of the whole like, oh, I know what it's like to be black and I'm a white person. It's like, no, you don't. And it's okay that you don't because I also don't know what it's like to be white and I never will. Emotional bridges allow us to be thoughtful about the next question and ending here. How can I be a better ally? How can I show up on your behalf? When I felt powerless, what did I need in those moments? And that might be a better starting place to show up for someone and ask them a question about like, how can I best show up for you? And be authentic about it. And even share, I know when I felt powerless, and I know it's not the exact same thing because I'm not even experiencing the world like you. Here's what I wish someone had done for me. Does that resonate with you? How would you like me to show up for you? Is there anything else? I I might even be completely wrong, right? But just that whole framing, and I know I'm moving really fast because we're done, but that whole framing around empathy from a practice-based perspective works with the fact that humans are biologically selfish. So it's, it's literally like a body hack at this point. And that's what I found to be a bit more impactful and effective. And I leave that with you here. And it's a different way to think about narrative and intelligence. So thank you all. Appreciate you all. Oh, and the comments are fabulous. I hope you get a chance to absorb and review and feel the love that folks are sharing with you. This is exactly what I wanted. (laughs) Oh, good, good. I'm glad. This this has been my experience when I when I hear Mike. It's just like, oh, yay, yay, brain so tingly. I have so much work to do. So I, I hope you feel the way. I hope you don't feel overwhelmed. And to one another and to Mike into this space. And um, not all of our episodes are like this. I want you to come back and experience the fullness of all the different variations of our amazing speakers and our topics. Um, like next month, December 8th is the holiday party. That's just gonna be fun, a fun time for connection and, and relaxation. And then we have amazing episodes coming up in the near. So we hope you can join us. And thank you so much, Mike. It's just amazing. You're, you're oh, awesome. Thank you all so much. and. Yeah, I'll drop my email in the chat. Feel free to reach out. Thank you for joining us. Please do join us for the next live possibility project so you can take part in the breakout sessions that follow. All sessions are recorded. Please visit possibilityproject.org and connect with us on LinkedIn so we can invite you to meet more incredible impact influencers and make new connections with people who care about what you care about. This has been Possibility Project, produced in cooperation with the nonprofit Snapcast.